Well, the theology of those last three hymns, I think, gives us a faith to be able to approach this uh, chapter 9 of Revelation without fear. It is a scary passage in some ways, and yet Christians should not approach it in fear. On page uh, 16, the majority text is um, printed for you. So the fifth angel trumpeted, and I saw a star that had fallen out of the sky to the earth, and to him was given the key to the shaft of the abyss. So he opened the shaft of the abyss, and smoke went up out of the shaft, like the smoke of a burning furnace. And the sun and the air were darkened because of the smoke from the shaft, and locusts exited from the smoke into the earth. And to them was given a capability, just like the scorpions of the earth have capability. And they were told not to harm the grass of the earth, nor any green plant, nor any tree, but only those men who do not have the seal of God on their foreheads. And it was designated to them not to kill them, but to torment them five months. And their torment is like the torment of a scorpion whenever it strikes a person. And in those days, the people will seek death, but not find it. They will want to die, but death will run away from them. Now the appearance of the locusts was like horses prepared for battle, and something like a golden crown was on their heads, and their faces were like human faces. They had hair like a woman's, and their teeth were like a lion's. They had breastplates, like breastplates of iron, and the noise of their wings was like the noise of many chariots with horses rushing into battle. And they have tails like scorpions and stingers precisely in those tails. They have the capability to hurt the populace five months, having as king over them the angel of the abyss. His name in Hebrew is Abaddon, while in Greek he has the name Apollyon. The first woe is past, but two woes are still coming after these. Amen. Father, we thank you for your word, for your judgments. They are holy, they are just. And we thank you that these things do not hinder, but they advance your kingdom. We thank you that you are in control of nations. You raise up, you cast down. And you are the God who will invincibly build your church so that even the gates of hell will not prevail against it through your son, Jesus Christ. And that um, we can look forward to a day in which all nations will bow their knees before King Jesus. We long for that time. We long for our nation to bow its knees before him. And so we pray that you would uh, equip us and uh, help us to have the knowledge by which we can resist uh, the wiles of the evil one, resist all of his power. And uh, we pray for your, your anointing and your blessing upon the preaching of your word. In Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. Well, last week I demonstrated that this, the locusts in this uh, chapter were not a literal locust plague. Instead, the Apostle John wrote it in a way that would have immediately directed the mind of the first century reader to the bristling symbols in the armies of Rome. Um, all of those armies, uh, those armies' symbols pointed to their gods, what we would call demons. We saw that the official emblem of Titus's 15th legion was a locust, and a locust symbol was on all of the infantry's shields. We saw that the, the scorpion uh, was on all of the shields of the cavalry, 
And we have the symbols here of various totems and various symbols in Titus's armies that they themselves saw as pointing to their god Apollyon, who they, on that 15th legion, worshipped, and all of the gods under Apollyon. So we looked at the symbols last week, and we show how they pointed to the coming of Titus's army on October 31 of AD 66. Now today I'm going to begin unraveling what this passage teaches us about the demons that were symbolized, okay? Because John assumes an understanding of previous passages, uh, we're going to dig deeply into things that are just briefly mentioned in uh, verse 1 because John expects you already to know about the abyss and to know about the shaft portion or the dungeon portion of that abyss. He expects you to know uh, what the stars symbolize and what the, uh, where uh, demons uh, originated. But because the modern church is so messed up on these issues, uh, I'm going to spend the whole sermon just on verse 1. It's kind of an introduction to the demonology of the chapter. Verse 1 says, So the fifth angel trumpeted, and I saw a star that had fallen out of the sky to the earth. And let's just stop there for now. That clause introduces us to two quite different angels. Uh, when you start counting off the earlier angels, one, two, three, four, you realize that this is the fifth in a series of good angels that were advancing the cause of Jesus Christ, carrying out his orders. These were the generals, so to speak, of the mighty cherubim armies. But pitted against this good angelic general, there is a, a fallen star. And this star is identified as a him who appears to have far greater power than the king, Apollyon, that he releases from the pit. Now, when you go down to verse 11 and you realize the incredible power that this king, Apollyon, the, the angel of the abyss, had, and that the star is far greater than this Apollyon, you realize he can be none other than Satan himself. And so I, along with Beale and many other commentaries, believe that this uh, fallen star is Satan. And all of the locusts are a subgroup army of the much larger army that uh, Satan led in rebellion against God, way back in the time of Genesis chapter 3. Now, these ones were unleashed from the abyss, but we're going to be seeing in the second half of the chapter, there's a whole bunch that are unleashed from the river Euphrates. So right off the bat, we're given some comfort that demons can't come and go just any time that they please. They are restricted in their movements. They are restricted in what they can do. That's a comfort. Now, that's my brief summary statement of the first phrase in verse 1, but my interpretation instantly raises controversy. It wasn't controversial in the old days. It's just become very controversial in recent days. Many evangelicals, in my uh, opinion, and I think in the opinion of the Puritans and others, have an incredibly messed up demonology. So we're going to take uh, this really slowly. If we don't identify this star appropriately, or the locusts, or the 
abyss, we're going to mess up some of our applications later on in this chapter. And when you see some of the strange teachings on demonology and the even stranger practices that they engage in, in evangelical, especially in charismatic Pentecostal uh, churches, you can realize you get these things wrong, there are very serious uh, repercussions. And I know that some of you have read books uh, by people like Henry Wright, for example, and others uh, that can easily lead us astray. So do be patient. I really want to set the groundwork today for what we're going to be teaching uh, through the rest of the chapter. And I think down the road, you're going to really appreciate the fact we have, we've slowly slogged through these controversies today. Now, the first thing I want to do this morning is to make the case that this chapter is indeed describing Satan, releasing Apollyon, one of his generals, and releasing Apollyon's angels from the lowest portion of the abyss, called the dungeon, or a Tartarus, or the pit. Uh, the abyss has different chambers, uh, each of which has locking gates. And uh, these demons are particularly vicious demons that have previously been imprisoned there. So we're going to just take this step by step. I'm going to build my theology bit by bit. First of all, the identity of the fallen star. In your outlines, you'll see a number of scriptures where angels are called stars. Job 38, verse 7 says that on day one of creation, the morning stars sang together. And in context, he's clearly talking about angels. Judges 5, verse 20 has a, an interesting poem with two parallel clauses, two parallel thoughts. The first thought speaks of invisible beings who, quote, fought from the heaven, heavens, excuse me. So what kind of invisible beings fight from the heavens, it's angels. But in the second parallel thought, it says, the stars from their courses fought against Sisera. Now we know it was angels fighting on behalf of Israel and against the enemy. So by way of parallelism, he is saying that angels and stars are the same thing. One is the symbol of the other. I'm making a case that this star is a fallen angel uh, not a good angel, not Jesus, not anything else. It was clearly Satan. Now, Revelation 12, verse 4, says that the dragon Satan drew a third of the stars from heaven and made them fall. So in our chapter, a star has fallen from heaven. In that chapter, there are a bunch of stars that fall from heaven. Maybe this is one of those stars that has fallen. Thankfully, in chapter 12, verses 7 and 9, he identifies those stars who has fallen, and he says that they were his angels, that is, they were Satan's angels. But Revelation 12 clearly describes the head of all of those stars as being cast to the ground himself. And so that would be a star being cast to the ground and then identified as the dragon, the devil, and Satan. So I think it's a fairly tight argument for this fallen star being Satan. John is defining his terms within his own book. Now we could stop there, but because there's so much controversy on this, I do want to give you a little bit more information. Luke chapter 10 uses a different metaphor when Jesus says, I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. And I want to read you all four verses, Luke 10 verses 17 through 20. Then the seventy returned with joy, saying, Lord, even the demons are subject to us in your name. And he said to them, I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. 
Behold, I give you the authority to trample on serpents and scorpions and over all the power of the enemy, and nothing shall by any means hurt you. Nevertheless, do not rejoice in this, that the spirits are subject to you, but rather rejoice because your names are written in heaven. I want you to notice, first of all, that he describes those demons as scorpions. Very interesting parallel to, to our passage where the locusts are said to have power and a sting just like scorpions. But Jesus also treats Satan as being one of those demons. Well, if Satan is identified as a demon here, and he is identified as an angel elsewhere, that's a pretty clear hint that angels and demons are the same thing. So keep that in mind when we go to identify the demons a little bit later on. He also calls these uh, demons serpents, scorpions, the enemy, and spirits. They're tormenting spirits under Satan's authority. But in terms of a further parallel to our passage, uh, Beale's massive commentary translates that verse this way. I saw Satan fall like a star from heaven. I looked it up in the dictionary because I had not seen that translation. Sure enough, star is one of the meanings of the term. It's not the most obvious meaning, but it is a possible translation. But either way, whether you say I saw Satan falling like lightning from heaven or falling like a star from heaven, it's a fairly close parallel uh, to Revelation 9 verse 1. It identifies this light that falls from heaven as Satan. Now, of course, Luke 10 is probably alluding to Isaiah chapter 14, which is another description of Satan clearly falling as a star from heaven. Isaiah 14, in that chapter, Lucifer's temptation of pride was to say this, I will ascend into heaven. I will exalt my throne above the stars of God. He wanted to be the chief angel but God says to him, how you are fallen from heaven, O Lucifer, son of the morning, how you are cut down to the ground. Now, son of the morning was the brightest star, but the name Lucifer itself means morning star. So uh, that passage explicitly calls angels stars and says that the morning star, Lucifer, had fallen. Now, commentaries say that is such a close parallel to Revelation 9, verse 1. It is virtually a commentary on it. It's calling the star Satan or Lucifer. And Beale's commentary cites numerous Jewish and early Christian commentaries that identify this star as Satan. So I believe it is virtually certain that first century Christians who were reading this would have instantly identified this star as being the fallen star of Isaiah chapter 14. Not, not Christ, not a good angel, not another bad angel, but Lucifer, the devil. And the reason I bring all of this up is that you don't have to read very many books on demonology written by evangelicals before you start running across some pretty ridiculous arguments on the origin of the demonic. And sadly, it affects their practice. Uh, there are some pretty bizarre practices out there on casting out demons and uh, identifying the difference between a bad angel and a demon and things like that. And, and basically, it comes from superstition from the Greeks and from the Jews, where they get a lot of their theology of the demonic. We get ours from the Scripture and the Scripture alone. Now, I wish I didn't even have to deal with these controversies this morning, but I do, because some of you guys have read these books and you've wondered, what, what do we make of these things? 
And so I think I need to at least give a bare bones response to each one of these uh, theories. And it's one of the reasons why your outline has so many scriptures. Don't worry, I'm not covering all of those scriptures, but I at least want you to have, even though I'm not gonna cover them all, I want you to have them in your hands. Okay, first false theory says that demons are the spirits of a pre-Adamite race who desperately want to get back into bodies again, and so they possess people. Now, you might find it hard to believe that anybody could believe such a ridiculous theory as that. It's very prevalent. You do not have to read very far, and you see there's a ton of people out there who believe this. And, and in fact, um, I think some of you have mentioned to me, you've read authors and you've wondered. So let me give you five reasons why this interpretation is totally bogus. First, this theory cannot survive without the gap theory. Now, if you hold to the gap theory, it's not a very good argument, uh, so I'll give you some more arguments in a little bit. But in my opinion, the gap theory is a theory that has been thoroughly discredited in recent years by Hebrew studies. Um, basically, the gap theory says that there is a gap of billions of years between Genesis 1, verse 1 and Genesis 1, verse 2. And during those billions of years, uh, there was a, an entire civilization that was wiped out. This is long before Adam came along. So rather than all things in the universe being created in six days, you have all things in the universe, well, not all things in the universe, but on earth being refashioned and reordered in six days. So on their theory, the sun and the moon, which had already existed for billions of years, began to shine through the thick cloud cover that was on the earth on day four and um, revealing some of what God was refashioning. So on the pre-Adamite human's view, the dinosaur bones came from a time before Genesis 1 verse 2. Many of those same people believe that the so-called Cro-Magnon man Neanderthal man, Nebraska man, Java man, and other humanoid bones came from that period of time. Now, I'm not going to get into debunking why those are total hoaxes, uh, but the theory was developed before they were proven to be uh, uh, hoaxes. In any case, many of those gap theorists still think that demons are the spirits of those pre-Adamite men. When I preached on Genesis chapter 1, I had debunked the theory. I'm not going to do so this morning. But if you can disprove the gap theory, automatically you have disproved this theory on the origin of demons. Okay, so th that would be uh, one thing. Let me give you some additional reasons because there are some people who believe in the gap theory. Here's some more reasons. Second reason why it is not credible is there's not even a hint of a pre-Adamite race in the Bible. And they say, oh yeah, there is, these demons. Yeah, that's circular reasoning though. Uh, there's no hint that there were actual humans. Even if you assume the gap theory to be true, there's no hint that there was a pre-Adamite race that uh, existed. That idea is inserted into the text. Third, Romans 5 verse 12 says that death came to planet Earth as a result of Adam's fall and deposit billions of years of, uh, worth of fossil record to a time before Genesis 1 verse 2. Not only, well, it contradicts the statement at the end of that chapter, verse 31, in which God says, then God saw everything that he had made, and indeed it was very good. Everything was very good. Now, would dinosaur bones with tumors and breaks and evidences of other disease be very good? No. 
uh, would evidence in the fossil record still there uh, of a humanoid race that had fallen and rebelled against God be very good? No, it would not. Gary North points out that everything in creation was very good because God decreed it, God's creation produced it, God's standards measured it, and God's evaluation announced it. But it also contradicts Paul's statement in Romans 5.12 that the world did not know death, did not know death till Genesis 3. All animals with breath started dying after the fall of Adam. Fourth, the one and only passage that they try to use to distinguish demons from fallen angels, which is Acts 23, verses 8 through 9, actually proves too much. Let me read that for you. It says, For Sadducees say that there is no resurrection and no angel or spirit, but the Pharisees confess both. Then there arose a loud outcry, and the scribes of the Pharisees' party arose and protested, saying, We find no evil in this man, but if a spirit or an angel has spoken to him, let us not fight against God. So they try to say, this passage clearly shows that a spirit is different from an angel here, so angels have bodies. I think, well, that's quite a leap in reasoning. But secondly, they say that this passage proves that there are spirits besides angels that can speak to men. But if that passage proves that angels have bodies, then Revelation 16, verse 14, which speaks of spirits of demons, proves that demons have bodies, and uh, even they do not agree with that. In fact, it would undermine their argument because, again, it would make no difference between angels and demons. Secondly, we don't get our theology from the Sadducees and the Pharisees. That's what the passage is quoting, the Sadducees and Pharisees. Why do we say that they're right? And furthermore, the passage was clearly talking about what they thought unfallen spirits or angels uh, were doing, not bad ones. If they want to say that the word spirit there proves a pre-Adamite race, then they would have to say that there must be some unfallen pre-Adamite spirits that are wandering around, which this theory does not uh, hold to. So it completely discredits uh, their, their view. Uh, I think it's much better to understand the Pharisees using angel and spirit as designation for seraphim, which are the messengers, and cherubim, who are the warriors. And we saw in a previous sermon that that's exactly the way Revelation distinguishes between those two orders of angels. Lastly, whether or not these spirits previously had bodies is absolutely meaningless to the debate of whether they want to possess people. They want to possess people because they hate the image of God and man, and they're doing everything they can to mar it and to destroy uh, that image. So it's much more straightforward to take all demons as fallen angels, just like the earlier passages that I gave demonstrate. Now, a second theory says that demons are the disembodied spirits of all unbelievers, or some people say, no, it's the disembodied spirits of really, really bad guys. So you got a neighbor down the road who dies, and his spirit leaves his body, and he's really uncomfortable wandering around without a body, so he's constantly trying to figure out, where's a body that I can inhabit? So that's the theory that they have. But Scripture is quite clear that the moment unbelievers die, their body goes to hell, to Hades and awaits the final day of judgment. They cannot wander around. Ezekiel 31, 16 through 17, speaks of, quote, those who descend into the pit down to hell, and then makes clear they cannot escape 
from that place. They, they, they don't have the liberty to wander around. Isaiah 11 says of the king of Babylon, your pomp is brought down to Sheol, and basically the same conclusion. He could not wander around. Uh, Luke 16 gives the story of the rich man and Lazarus, and Abraham tells the person in hell, and besides all this, between us and you, there was a great gulf fixed, so that those who want to pass from here to you cannot, nor can those from there pass to us. And as you continue reading the story, you realize, hey, this rich man can't go to visit his brothers, his relatives, because he's in prison. So again, another proof that they cannot simply wander around. And the occult practitioners here in Omaha who are claiming to interact with their dead relatives, no, it's demons who are impersonating dead relatives. They are not talking to dead relatives. It is guaranteed. When Roman Catholics try to talk to and pray to the spirits of dead relatives, uh, they are engaging in great error, okay? It is a disobedience to God's command to not try to contact the dead. I think you're automatically, those Roman Catholics are automatically involving themselves in the demonic. There are many other arguments that make this interpretation a lame one, but certainly Revelation 9 contradicts it by calling this head demon who is Apollyon, calling him an angel. If the locusts are demons and the locust king is a demon and he's an angel, he's called an angel, then angels and demons are the same thing. Likewise, if Satan is called a demon in one passage and an angel in another passage, that would seem to identify the two. There is one more theory that's become incredibly popular in evangelical circles. This one says that the giants or the Nephilim of Genesis 6 verse 4 were the monstrous offspring of angels and women. Now there are two versions of uh, this theory. One version says that there were good angels at the time of Genesis 6 who sinned. They, they lusted after women and married them and produced offspring. The other version of it says that uh, no, it was already fallen angels who lusted after women and took them to be their wives. And uh, that would amount for the first version to a second fall of angels. And on their books and their websites, you'll see, yes, they do hold to a fall in Genesis 6. And there was a fall uh, uh, earlier as well. But um, all of them, both of those um, versions of this theory appeal to Jude 7, which speaks of pre-flood people lusting after strange flesh. Now, instead of seeing that as a condemnation of homosexuality, they see it as a condemnation of demons, I mean, of angels lusting after flesh that was different than their flesh. In other words, human flesh, which is ridiculous since angels don't have flesh. They don't have bodies. Um, and Christ was quite clear that angels do not marry, Matthew 22, verse 30. He said they do not marry. Yet whoever Genesis 6, verse 2 is talking about did marry. That means they can't be angels. You get the logic there? Genesis 6, 2 says that the sons of God married women. Jesus says that angels do not marry women. Ergo, the sons of God can't be angels. In any case, this theory claims that the Septuagint translates the Hebrew word Nephilim with gigantes, which according to this theory comes from gegenes, which they believe means earthborn instead of just born. Um, and they claim that earthborn was a term used by the Greeks to refer to the mythological titans who were part uh, celestial, part terrestrial. 
And then these book gives us a ton of their theology from Greek mythology. Well, not only is it a stretch of definitions, it denies the sufficiency of scripture for our demonology. In any case, on their theory, when God judged the world with the flood, the bodies of the Nephilim died, but their spirits of these half-angel, half-human beings are demons who want to get back into bodies. They say that these demonic spirits are neither angel nor human, but a mixture of both that produced a monstrosity. Now, several problems I have with that theory, and the first is that Genesis 6 calls these Nephilim men, not half-men, but men. Verse 4 says, those were the mighty men who were of old, men of renown. Now, as far as I'm concerned, that deals a death blow to uh, the theory. But you still find reformed people even, even reformed commentaries who hold to this uh, theory. So let me give you a couple of other objections that I have to it. And if you hold to the theory, maybe some of you do, I don't know. If you hold to the theory, be Bereans and check out some of the other references that I give in, in the outlines. Now, I've already cited several scriptures that speaks of the souls of all men in the Old Testament going down to Sheol. Bible knows of no exceptions. So if these are men, which Genesis 6, 2 says that they are, then their souls went down to Sheol when they died. They're in prison. They're not roaming around trying to possess people, making a nuisance of themselves. They are in prison. Third, on their theory, Jude has God binding the so-called father angels in the pit, but not the offspring. Why? Why would the angels be bound in the pit, but not the offspring, especially when those offspring supposedly go after strange flesh too? I've never seen a good answer. Fourth, they run up against the same exegetical arguments as the first theory does when they try to distinguish angels from uh, spirits, which is something absolutely essential to their theory. Uh, take a look again at the, um, the head locust in... Revelation 9. He gets released from the pit, right along with all of the other demonic locusts, and he's the king over them. And verse 6 says, having his king over them, what does it say? The angel of the abyss. His name in Hebrew is Abaddon, while in Greek he has the name Apollyon. So he's called an angel, and if the king of the demons is called an angel, it implies the demons are too. Well, let me reiterate the true view one more time. True view is that demons are fallen angels, and on this view, all angels were created perfect as was Lucifer or the devil. God tells Satan, you were perfect in your ways from the day you were created till iniquity was found in you, Ezekiel 28, 15. That chapter describes Satan as having rebelled against God, having incited other angels to rebel against God, which Revelation 12, verse 4 says amounted to one-third of all of the angels. And by the way, Ezekiel 28 um, goes back and forth between addressing uh, the king of Tyre and addressing uh, Lucifer. Why? Because Satan had possessed that king, just like the beast from the pit possesses Nero, and Nero was called the beast. So he goes back and forth in the same way. Well, with that in mind, I want you to turn now to Matthew chapter 25. And Jesus describes who's going to end up in hell on the final day of judgment. And there are only two categories. There's not three, there's not four categories, only two. So he's got all of the nations divided up. He's got the unbelievers on the left. He's got the believers on the right. 
And I want you to see what he says to those on the left in verse 41. <clears throat> then he will also say to those on the left hand, Depart from me, you cursed, into the everlasting fire prepared for the devil and his angels. Only two categories of people that hell was prepared for, these humans and the previous angels, Satan and his angels. There's not a third category of millions of non-angelic demons that he rules over. There are only humans and angels who will be in hell. Uh, Revelation 12 is also quite clear, I think, that Satan has a kingdom of angels that he uses to rule planet Earth. We'll take a look at Matthew 12 now. Matthew 12, verses 24 through 30. Now, when the Pharisees heard it, they said, This fellow does not cast out demons except by Beelzebub, the ruler of the demons. But Jesus knew their thoughts and said to them, Every kingdom divided against itself is brought to desolation, and every city or house divided against itself will not stand. If Satan casts out Satan, he is divided against himself. How then will his kingdom stand? And if I cast out demons by Beelzebub, by whom do your sons cast them out? Therefore they shall be your judges. But if I cast out demons by the Spirit of God, surely the kingdom of God has come upon you. Or how can one enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods unless he first binds the strong man? And then he will plunder his house. He who is not with me is against me, and he who does not gather with me scatters abroad. Notice in verse 26 he says, if Satan casts out Satan. If Satan's not one of the demons, that statement really makes no sense. See, Jesus is casting out demons. The Pharisees are accusing him of casting out demons by Beelzebub, the, 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 the head of the demons, the ruler of the demons. And Christ says, well, that amounts to saying Satan casting, casts out Satan. Okay, for that statement to be true, Satan has to be a demon. In any case, it is crystal clear that the representatives of Satan's kingdom are called demons. And in other passages, the representatives of Satan's kingdom are called angels. They are one and the same thing. Now, let me just hurry through the rest of the outline. Now, I'm not going to develop all of the scriptures I've given there, but let me at least read the summary statement about the unique nature of angels and make a couple of comments. Point C, subpoint one, says that angels have a very unique nature. They were created by God on day one of creation, are quite distinct from man, are immortal spirit beings yet they can shape, shift, and manifest themselves with the appearance of humans or other shapes as needed. And I won't comment on all of the scriptures that I used as proof text, but let me comment on the changes of shape that they can take on. The shape-shifting, I think, can help to explain why both elect angels as well as fallen angels appear in different forms in both the Old Testament as well as in the book of Revelation. Sometimes they appear like men, sometimes like fire, sometimes like creatures. Why would they do that? <clears throat> well, um, I don't know <laughs> why they do that. Uh, why do demons in the Old Testament sometimes take on deliberately ugly ugly um, shapes. Uh, I, I can only guess, but my guess is that uh, they're evil and they try to twist and deform everything that God has made. For example, there are five passages in the Old Testament where uh, some demons are called satyrs 
S-A-T-Y-R, satyrs in the Old Testament. Now, the satyr was a god that the pagans worshipped that looked half human and half goat. And you study the Greek thinking behind that, and it was part of their justification for bestiality. It was a blurring of distinctions between humans and animals. But when the scripture itself calls the demons satyrs, it implies on occasion they manifested themselves to people in the shape of satyrs. And uh, perhaps it could be that in this chapter, some of those demons occasionally took on the shape of the symbols in Titus's army. There's no reason why the demons could not have looked exactly this way at times and then cha changed their shape at other times. But though they appear like animals on occasion, they're still personal beings. And in your outlines, I've given numerous scriptures that show personality. Things like rejoicing, fighting, worshiping, traveling, talking, growing in knowledge, lacking in certain details of knowledge. They serve, they transport people to heaven, they have a will, they do God's will, or in the case of demons, they resist God's revealed will. Uh, they love righteousness and hate evil, or in the case of demons, they love evil, but they are clearly personal beings that have an internal moral compass that knows right from wrong. But the scriptures in the next point show that they have powers that vastly exceed the powers of humans. Ezekiel portrays angels as being able to move as fast as lightning. Psalm 103 says that they excel in strength. Um, 1 Thessalonians 1 calls them mighty. How mighty are they? Well, you look at Daniel. Daniel sees one of these good angels and is so overpowered, he falls onto the ground and he can't move. He's that weak. He's so overwhelmed by the might of this angel. In uh, <clears throat> Matthew 28, verse 4, the hardened guards that were guarding Christ's uh, tomb, when they saw an, the angel, it says they fell down and became as dead men. <laughs> That's how overwhelmed they were by these angels. Angels broke off the chains that were on Peter's wrists and his ankles like they were nothing. They broke open uh, prison doors. Uh, Psalm 78, verse 49 says that the 10 plagues, those are pretty amazing plagues, those 10 plagues were brought by angels. And when we looked at the cherubim angels in chapter 4, we saw how amazing these angels are in their involvement in God's providences. For example, in Revelation 7, verses 1 through 2, those angels hold back the wind. How can they do that? I have no idea. But the scripture indicates that they do. And the more you study the doctrine of angels, the more you realize they are incredibly powerful beings. Now, here's the point. If demons are not just human souls, which you probably wouldn't be too afraid of, if demons are fallen angels, we should not be surprised that they are powerful too. We must not underestimate the power and the incredible danger of demons. We don't need to fear them but neither should we treat them lightly. And unbelieving humans are simply pawns in their hands. Let's move on, let's identify the fall in verse one. Verse one says, I saw a star that had fallen out of the sky to the earth. Now commentaries point out that John did not see this fall happening right then and there. The Greek grammar indicates the fall had already taken place before this unleashing of the demons. He was an already fallen angel. So the question comes, which fall is this referring to? There was a fall from sinlessness into a sinful state somewhere around Genesis 3. And Isaiah 14, verse 12, talks about that fall, saying, 
How you are fallen from heaven, O Lucifer, son of the morning. How you are cut down to the ground. Very, very similar language to what we were reading here in, in Revelation 9, verse 1. So that's one option. From Genesis 3 and on, Satan and his angels still had access to heaven, but they lost. They no longer had kingdom authority. They no longer uh, had uh, ministry in heaven. So they were excluded from that ministry, even though they had access. The second option is a spatial fall. When Satan and all demons were kicked out of heaven and barred from ever again having access uh, to the throne room of God. And Revelation 12, we're going to be seeing later, talks about both falls. Verse 4 describes his spiritual fall. Verses 7 through 12 describe his being cast out of heaven on May of AD 66. The spiritual fall happened around the time of Genesis 3. The spatial fall happened just a few months earlier than this in May of 66 and then was immediately followed by three and a half years of the great wrath. Uh, Revelation 12, verse 10 describes the second fall this way. Then I heard a loud voice saying in heaven, now salvation and strength and the kingdom of our God and the power of his Christ have come for the accuser of our brethren who accused them before our God day and night has been cast down. So prior to AD of 66, AD 66, Satan had access to heaven just like he did in the book of Job. But with the war of the archangel Michael against Satan and his, his angels, Satan no longer, God no longer allowed him to have any access to heaven whatsoever. Uh, that happened five months earlier. So those are the two options. Both falls occurred previous to this event. But on either interpretation, the fallen star of verse 1 is describing an evil fallen angel. And this leader of the locusts in verse 11 is also a fallen angel or a demon. He's restricted to planet Earth and to its atmosphere. But that demon, Apollyon, he wants to create as much havoc as he possibly can. So when Christ determines to judge Israel, this demon, just like in 1 Kings, probably volunteers. Say, so, yeah, I would love to do that. Well, he would love to be out of the pit, for one but love to bring the torment that this passage is talking about because of his evil nature. Now, verse 1 goes on to say, to him was given the key to the shaft of the abyss. Now, that phrase is as far as we'll have time to go through this morning, but it does have several issues. First of all, what is the abyss? The New King James translates that as the bottomless pit, but actually the word bottomless does not occur anywhere in the text. It has a bottom. Uh, it's just pretty deep. It's called the abyss or the deep. Well, let's look at some other passages where that term abyss or abusos occurs. Romans 10 verse 7 shows that this was where Christ's spirit went when he died. Let me start reading at verse 6. But the righteousness of faith speaks in this way. Do not say in your heart who will ascend into heaven, that is, to bring Christ down from above, or who will descend into the abyss, that is, to bring Christ up from the dead. So the abyss is the place of the dead, and Christ went to the place of the dead. But in Ephesians 4, 9, where Paul makes exactly the same argument, he substitutes the phrase, the lower parts of the earth, for the abyss. He says, now, this ascended, he ascended, what does it mean but that he also first descended into the lower parts of the earth? 
So we can make a logical deduction from this that abyss and lower parts of the earth are synonyms, referring to the same thing. Christ's body was not in the lower parts of the earth, only his soul was. And then in Acts 2, Peter quotes Psalm 16.10 saying, For you will not leave my soul in Hades. Well, that means Hades is also a synonym for the abyss. Psalm 16 uses the term Sheol, which is the Hebrew term. Peter, when he's translating it, uses the word Hades, which is just a Greek name for exactly the same place. So I'm going to be referring to Sheol and Hades as being the same place. In any case, preaching on Psalm 16, Peter says, David, foreseeing this, spoke concerning the resurrection of the Christ, that his soul was not left in Hades, nor did his flesh see corruption. So the soul of Christ was in Hades, the body was in an above-the-ground tomb. So, so far we're seeing that the abyss, the lower parts of the earth, Sheol, Hades, they are synonyms for the same place. And if you were to do a study of all of the words that use Sheol in the Old Testament and Hades in the New Testament, you would realize Hades, Sheol, it's always down. Sixty-two times uh, it is said to be down. People go down to Sheol. And he's not talking about the grave. Let me just quickly demonstrate he's not talking about the grave. Um, King Saul was said to go down to Sheol while his body hung above the ground for several days. So his body is lifted up, his soul goes down. Another proof is that people talk in Sheol, weep, they feel pain. Well, I can't possibly be referring to the, to the grave. And on the other hand, other people are said to feel great pleasure and have comfort in Sheol. How could both of those be true? How could people feel pain and torment in Sheol and people feel comfort? Well, it's because Sheol's divided up into two compartments. In Christ's story in Luke 16, both Abraham and the evil rich man are in Hades. But the rich man is way down. It says he's looking up to the upper compartment up there. He sees Abraham and he sees Lazarus experiencing comfort and joy. So paradise was the upper portion of Sheol. After Christ's re resurrection, he transferred paradise to heaven. Prior to that, Jesus said, no one has ascended to heaven, John 3, verse 13. But Sheol is also described in Job 17, 16 as having gates. Gates shut things out, let things in. And Luke, in Luke 16's description of Hades, both compartments are shut to each other. They can see each other, but they're kept from traveling to each other. So there are gates on Sheol. Now in your outlines, I have a point that gives scriptures very briefly describing the torment portion of Sheol or Hades. Uh, two scriptures describe that portion as the lowest part of Sheol. Another verse describes it as the depths of Sheol. It is spoken of as being a deep place or an abyss, Luke 8.31, the heart of the earth, Matthew 12.30. And this low, lowest part of Sheol is spoken of as a place of pain, Psalm 116.3. That sure doesn't sound like the grave, okay? It's, it's, it's for our souls. It's said to be a place of sorrow, 2 Samuel 22, 6, a place of burning fire. For example, Deuteronomy 32, 22, it shall burn to the lowest shield. It shall consume the earth with her increase and set on fire the foundations of the mountains. So the fire that's experienced in Sheol seems to have something to do with the molten fire that comes up under mountains, which we would call volcanoes, right? Well, 
Science tells us that because of the pressures of the earth, the center of the earth is uh, molten and it's somewhere between 11,000 and 13,000 degrees Fahrenheit. 212, that's plenty enough to scorch you. But uh, this is 61 times hotter, which is hotter than the sun, just to give you a little bit of an idea. It's hotter than the surface of the sun. So it's a very literal lake of fire in the heart of the earth. So that's hell before the second coming. At the second coming, Revelation 20, verse 13 tells us that Sheol or Hades will be emptied out and cast into the lake of fire, which in turn will be cast into outer darkness forever and ever. So it says, then death and Hades were cast into the lake of fire. Now we're not told what kind of a shape that that, that that lake is going to be in. There's been all kinds of hypotheses out there. Some people think it's going to be like a giant sun, which is a literal lake of fire. It's liquid, but it's on fire, and that being cast into outer darkness. But another, even scarier idea is that it's a massive planet, and because the huge amount of weight and pressure, it's going to have enormous temperatures and varying degrees of temperatures all the way up to the surface, so it's going to be a literal lake of fire in the center of that, uh, of that mass, but it's going to be darkness inside. And if it's cast into outer darkness, it'll be darkness outside. Nothing but darkness, but still a literal lake of fire. So anyway, we're not told exactly how it will be achieved, but we take both statements uh, as being true, darkness and fire. So that's torment shield. But I've also given a number of scriptures that show that in the Old Testament times, there was an upper compartment of Sheol or Hades that was called paradise. Until after Christ's resurrection, saints always went down to Sheol. Always went down to paradise. Paradise was down, not up. Um, for example, Genesis 37, 31 through 35, Jacob says, I will go down into Sheol to my son, mourning. Now, some people translate that as the grave, but... That doesn't make any sense. Jacob thought that Joseph had been eaten by animals, so he's not in a grave. And Jacob himself wasn't going to end up in a grave. He was, bones were going to be in a box, and he told him, take my bones uh, to, to Canaan. And um, once he died, his soul, though, went down to the subterranean place. Likewise, when Samuel was brought back from the dead, he did not come down from heaven, but his soul came up out of the earth. That's 1 Samuel 28, 11 through 16. In fact, let me go ahead and read that for you. Samuel said to Saul, why have you disturbed me by bringing me up? Now, interestingly, Samuel told Saul, moreover, the Lord will also deliver Israel with you into the hand of the Philistines, and tomorrow you and your sons will be with me. Well, you check in chapter 31, Saul never made it into the grave. He was hung for a period of time on the city walls and, and then eventually his body was burned. So clearly Samuel was referring to the souls of these men joining him down. Now some object and they say that the thief on the cross went to heaven, but if Christ was in heaven with a thief, how could he say after his resurrection, do not cling to me for I have not yet ascended to my father, John 20 verse 17. So on the third day, on the resurrection day, he said, I have not yet ascended to my Father. Indeed, how could Ephesians 4, 8 through 10 say that Christ had to first 
quote, first descend into the lower parts of the earth before he could ascend to heaven. So for three days and three nights, Christ's soul was in the heart of the earth. It was in the abyss. It was in Sheol. Psalm 16, verse 10, Psalm 49, verse 15, Acts 2, 31 through 32. And each of those passages clearly distinguishes between his soul and his body. His body doesn't see corruption, and his soul is not going to stay in Sheol. Two different statements. Romans 10, verse 7 makes it clear that when Christ came from the dead, he ascended from the abyss. Same word that's used in Revelation 9, verse 1. So obviously, it's not just Christ that was in the abyss. Eventually, Satan would be too. Speaking of Satan, Isaiah 14 says, Yet you shall be brought down to Sheol, to the lowest depths of the pit. And I want you to notice that phrase, lowest depths of the pit. The only part of the pit, the only part of Sheol Hades that Satan will ever be a part of is the lowest part. And the rest of the outline only deals with this lower Sheol or lower Hades. Revelation 9 indicates that previous to this chapter, Apollyon and these locust demons had been bound in the pit. Revelation 17, 8 speaks of the beast who was about to ascend out of the bottomless pit. So obviously the beast had been bound in the pit as well. So when John wrote this book in early AD 66, he says that God was about to unleash the beast upon Nero. And most nowadays just don't account adequately for these aspects of demonology. Now, perhaps next week or sometime in the future, I'll deal with the whole question. Can you, when you cast out demons, can you cast them into the pit? I think you can. But um, there are a number of scriptures that talk about uh, this, and they're fight, fighting against you, like uh, the crazy man in Luke 8 when Jesus uh, was casting them out. They begged Christ not to cast them into the abyss. I think Christ did it anyway. I think that's why those swine ran down into the sea and got drowned, is they're, they're going to the pit and uh, the, the swine die with them. But there are scriptures that indicate that all demons, including Satan, will eventually be confined to the abyss. Revelation 20 talks about it. Zechariah 13.2 talks about it. There will be a purging of planet Earth with all demons being absent sometime in our future, but before the end of history. I think it precedes, according to Revelation 20, whatever the thousand years is. But there are other implications of this phrase. If Satan has to be given a key to have access to open the abyss, that implies Satan can't come and go from the abyss whenever he wants. He has limitations. Likewise, if these demons can't go to Israel without being unleashed from the pit, it indicates demons can't come and go from Hades either. They have their limitations for travel, and even those who aren't in the pit are bound and barred from traveling from one country to another. Praise God. I mean, if you take a look at verse 14, it says, saying to the sixth angel who had the trumpet, release the four angels who are bound at the great river Euphrates. So the abyss is not the only place that God binds the activities of demons. He can keep them from coming into a, uh, into a country. For many years, America has been relatively free of the demonic. There have been pockets here and there. You could see even from the colonial times. But uh, it, it, is, it has been a major change. When my dad ministered out in Ethiopia and was casting out demons, frequently these demons would say that they were going overseas. And now that 
province, the area, the state where my dad worked in Ethiopia, Kambata, is over 95% uh, Christian, and it's relatively free of the demonic. You really do not see much um, demonic activity there. We, on the other hand, are absolutely inundated with the demonic, uh, infested with the demonic. Perhaps they came from Africa to America, but their travels are restricted by God until a nation or a region deserve to have those demons inflicted upon it. And I think America certainly deserves the demonic infestations that we've been experiencing. Now, since every trumpet blast of the good angels is allowed by Jesus, that implies that demons can do nothing without Christ's sovereign permission as well. So Jesus controls access to and exit from Sheol or Hades. He controls the keys. And that's exactly what Jesus said in Revelation 1.18. He said, I am he who lives and was dead, and behold, I am alive forevermore. Amen. And I have the keys of Hades and death. Now contrast that statement with Hebrews 2.14, which says that prior to the resurrection, Satan had the power of death. Hebrews 2.14, Inasmuch then as the children have partaken of flesh and blood, he himself likewise shared in the same, that through death he might destroy him who had the power of death, that is the devil. There is a sense in which Satan used to have some of the keys of Hades, and those keys were stripped from his hands. So back to Revelation 1.18, early in AD 66, Jesus said that he had the keys of Hades in his hands. He had all of the keys. So why on earth would Jesus give those keys back to Satan, even if only for a short time? Actually, he didn't give them the whole keychain, did he? Revelation 1.18, he has the keys, plural, to Hades in his hand. But here, it's singular. He gave him the key, that's singular in the Greek, and it's a key to only one portion of Hades, the pit portion of the abyss. What, um, what Pickering translates as the shaft of the abyss. Um, Jeremiah 41, 7 through 9 uses this word in the Septuagint to refer to the dungeon that Jeremiah was put into. And if you compare this verse with 2 Peter chapter 2, verse 4, side by side, you'll see a whole bunch of parallels. And you will see that Peter uses Tartarus as a, an equivalent to this shaft. Tartarus was the name for the lowest portion of Sheol Hades that was a place of imprisonment for some of the most violent of the demons. And it's those demons that are unleashed upon Israel in AD 66. Second Peter 2, 4 says that they were reserved there for judgment. Whose judgment? Their own or somebody else's judgment? Well, there's debate on that. Um, I believe they were unleashed on Israel as a judgment on Israel, but we find out later on in the book that they themselves are going to be judged in AD 70, right along with the beast, another demon. So demons can be unleashed for a time in history as Christ's judgment upon nations, and we'll examine that much later in the book. But at least you have in your hands the scriptures needed to settle the debates that swirl around uh, verse 1. I know it's been heavy teaching this morning, and uh, hopefully we can get into more practical stuff as we go through the chapter, but let me end with some applications even from what we have covered so far. The biggest application is that we can trust Jesus is more powerful than the most powerful of the demons that are out there. Too many times Christians are afraid of demons, 
Now, you can understand that when you begin to realize how powerful and how evil they are. But in Mark 16, Jesus gave power over demons to any believer. In Luke 10, Jesus told the 70, Behold, I give you the authority to trample on serpents and scorpions and over all the power of the enemy, and nothing shall by any means hurt you. Notice he says, we have authority over all the power of the enemy. That's an astounding promise. And in Revelation 12, we're going to be seeing that any believer, even a young believer, uh, has power over Satan. Satan is no match. Even Satan is no match for a believer who is cleansed in the blood of Christ and walking in the power of Christ. So that's the first application. Jesus is more powerful than the most powerful of demons, and he has given us authority by union with him. So do not fear demons. Second application is that this whole trumpet is a judgment unleashed by Christ. Romans 1 says, there does come a time when a nation is given up unto a depraved mind. Well, how does that happen? I believe one way that it happens is through the demonic. When nations defy Christ and cast off the bonds of Christ, they are very vulnerable to demonic attack and demonic blindness. In a sense, it's parallel to what happens when an individual defies Christ casts off the bonds of Christ. He becomes vulnerable as well. And that we have demonic blindness in America is undeniable. It's so obvious. People turn a blind eye to the well-documented sale of baby parts by Planned Parenthood. 100 years ago, people would have been sickened to their stomachs by this grisly industry. I think there would have been people lined up before an execution squad or hung or something like that but now they're defended we've got a presidential candidate who defends them okay nobody's being prosecuted in fact the person who exposed Planned Parenthood he was sued in jail thankfully the judges were dismissed I mean the charges were dismissed but it's madness and I think the demonic explains it the media refuses to report on criminal actions by leading politicians in D.C. How can they get away with it? How can there be literally trillions of dollars? I just read about another six and a half trillion dollars they just discovered is missing. Nobody can explain where it went to. How do people get away with that? I, I think the demonic component uh, produces hardness and blindness. Homosexuality used to be a crime in most states 50 years ago. But now you're considered guilty of a hate crime if you speak against homosexuality. How could things turn upside down so quickly? I think it is a demonic blindness. The media obviously has been speaking favorably of homosexuality for quite some time, but just in the last three weeks, I have read from a number of mainstream newspapers these, what are they, what are they called them, heartwarming stories of people engaged in incest, and they ought to have their rights as well, sometimes three-generational incest, is so sickening, it is so disgusting, I think nothing but the demonic can really explain it. It's got demonic written all over it. Our nation deserves this judgment, and nothing but God's grace can avert it. And that's my third application. It is not a platitude. It is not a platitude to say that politics won't fix our nation. If you vote for one of Satan's children into politics, he might be conservative now, but how long do you think he'll be conservative if Satan unleashes, unleashes his locusts upon that person? Not very long. Now, it's true, Christians can surround such a person with prayer and a wall of protection like Nebuchadnezzar was surrounded by by Christians and, and protection, but you read the books of Ezra, Nehemiah, and Esther, and you see how tenuous that really can be. 
And without a wall of protection, they are vulnerable. I've seen politicians go to Washington, D.C. with family values, opposed to homosexual marriage, and after a few years, not only are they pro-homosexual, they are homosexuals themselves. Okay, they're under the influence of demonic locusts. Voting conservative unbelievers into Washington will not help. Nothing but the gospel has power against the demonic. And I think it is high time that Christians focused all of their efforts on getting Christians with good worldview and a close walk with Jesus elected. But it's not enough to have a Christian elected. He must be prayed for constantly. He must guard his own heart. You know, we saw with Kintner here in Nebraska how easy it is for a Christian to be taken down. Revelation 12 does not promise that Christians can oppose Satan successfully with conservative principles. There are three conditions to success given in Revelation 12. It says, and they overcame him by the blood of the lamb, by the word of their testimony, and they did not love their lives to the death. So what are the three conditions? Rightly using the blood of the lamb. Second, rightly using scriptural speech or, or testimony. Third, a life dedicated to Christ, no matter what the cost, not loving their lives. Christians must learn how to moment by moment cleanse their own sins with the blood of Christ. They need to learn how to oppose Satan with the blood of Christ. Now, they need to learn how to engage in spiritual warfare with their speech. And then thirdly, they need to be sold out to the word of God without being embarrassed. We must once again be placing the scriptures upon our lips in the public square if we hope to batter down the gates of Hades, it must become personalized, the word of their testimony. Now, when you've got hardcore Christians like that in politics, I think there's a potential for turning the world upside down. When you've got hardcore Christians like that in science and in the arts and in uh, media and other industries, we have the potential of turning the world upside down. But what has happened is the opposite. Christians have cast off the Old Testament law they're no longer experts in applying the Bible to, to culture. They don't even believe in the book. So there goes the first condition for success. No longer do they treat sin as very consequential, and their solution for statism is to elect more statists. It makes no sense. They do not apply the blood of Christ to politics or to culture. So there goes the second condition for success, and they're not sold out to Christ no matter what the cost. So there goes the third condition for success. It's no wonder we're losing the battle in America. We are in trouble. We are desperately in need of a reformation of the church of Jesus Christ from the ground up. Nothing but a total makeover of the church will be sufficient to stem the tide in America. But if there is a makeover, not even the gates of Hades can withstand a church like that. Matthew 16, verse 18. So pray with me that God would raise up a church that can take on these powers of the abyss. Amen. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for describing our enemy and warning us and teaching us how to take on the enemy. And as we begin to unravel this chapter, uh, we pray that you would give us a faith that greater are you who is with us than he who is in the world. May we have the kind of faith that saw demons fleeing and saw uh, strongholds falling and fortresses being given over uh, to the gospel and to Christianity in the first few centuries. I pray, Lord, that we would once again have a faith of a church militant and not of a church stagnant. And I pray this in Jesus' name.